such a beautiful sight to see all of you here. And I'm assuming a beautiful sight as I gaze into the camera, or is it the camera? For all those who are watching us online, we're glad that you have joined us. I'm glad that you are here. And I pray that this lesson will be advantageous, educational, and uplifting for us all. Love songs. They have changed their nature over the years. No doubt all of you know the lyrics to Bicycle Built for Two. Daisy, Daisy, tell me you love me true. I'm so crazy all for the love of you. We don't have lots of money or other fancy treats, but you look sweet upon that seat of a bicycle built for two. Can you imagine lyrics any more beautiful and love-felt than that? Let the record show? No, they cannot think of anything more. <laughs> or I dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair. Another classic love song. Perhaps one of the more enigmatic and, and love-felt songs, and I'll have to quote the words here to this chorus, Scooby-Dooby-Doo, Scoo-Dooby-Dooby-Doo. You remember that from the 1960s, don't you? Uh, people have voted on what they thought was the greatest love songs, and there was one written in the late 60s by George Harrison called Something. Something in the way that you move. And people have said that, that evokes such emotion and, and truth in love. And Paul McCartney wrote a few years after that, been a couple of generations, his silly love songs. People think we've had enough of silly love songs. But the greatest love song of all, in my humble opinion, is the Song of Solomon. There have been times in history to where children were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon. Now they're all rustling and saying, what is it in it we're not supposed to read? Because as soon as you tell a child they can't do something, they're going to want to read it to find out exactly what's in there and why they shouldn't be reading it. But in it, and, and scholars have, have really disagreed over the years of why on earth is the Song of Solomon included in the canon of Scripture? This is the second installment of five sermons that I'm giving taken from what is known as the poetry of the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at the book of Proverbs. This week, we look at the Song of Solomon. Next week, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes. This sermon is for the marriage. Next week's sermon is for children. Last week was for all of us. But don't think that just because this sermon is about marriage that, well, I'm not married or I'm a kid or, you know, I'm a widow or I'm single. It doesn't apply to me. It applies to all of us when we see the uniqueness of this book. And it's really a poem and unique in its nature in that each verse is something that is spoken within a conversation. And, and we have really five characters that are involved in this. God speaks at one point in this. We have the he, many people believe is Solomon speaking in this. 
We have she, who some people believe that this is the uh, Shulamite woman. We have a chorus, as it was, that chimes in every once in a while. And then we have the others in this. It's almost like an opera. I know your ears went up when I said opera because everybody loves an opera. But Solomon, when you think of all of the people who could give marital advice, where does Solomon fit in your list? Probably down towards the bottom, doesn't it? You think, come on, Solomon, 700 wives and 300 porcupines? Some people say porcupines because he got stuck with them. Concubines. And no, that's not something that you harvest corn and grain with. A thousand different women. And yet, he writes a love song for one particular woman. The love of his life. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29 gives us a, a pretty concise biography. We find this as Solomon is first become king. We begin in verse 29 of 1 Kings 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. I'll stop right there and say we only have about four to 500, depending on how you count them in the book of Proverbs. But he had beyond that. He had 3,000 proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of all beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. We know that the Queen of the South came all the way to hear Solomon. And she said, I've heard of you. But now in here, it says that her breath was taken away from her. It's like, when she heard his wisdom. And of the 1,005 songs, we really have three that are uh, preserved for us. Psalm 72, Psalm 127, and this, the Song of Solomon. Marriage. You think, it really doesn't have much to say about marriage in the Old Testament, but it does. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, in the law of Moses that was given, and there were some 613 by some people's count of the different laws. In 20, Deuteronomy 24, and verse 5, it says, When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. It's at that point you say, oh, isn't that romantic? Don't you? He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Kind of takes your breath away. Just one year of happiness. Just one year of happiness. <laughs> one of many. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul makes some unusual statements about marriage, not the least of which comes down to verse 28. 
Within the context, Paul is talking about those who should and shouldn't marry and those who can and won't, all of this. But within the context of what we call the coming storm of persecution, he writes, but if you do, not, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, betroth, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal in the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. So he's talking about the persecution that is coming. And he realizes what can happen to families. Jesus had foretold this because he said that, uh, that children would turn against parents and parents against children. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any strain upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You see, that is human nature, that as a husband and wife, you are concerned about each other. Amen? Very good. We've set that as a premise. We're always concerned about those whom we love. And Paul says that could be a real detriment in the persecution to come. Imagine what it would be like to see the one that you love tortured or killed. And Paul says, I want to spare you of this. Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 5, and we eventually will get to the Song of Solomon. We have, need to lay a little groundwork here. Solomon believed that a man and a woman ought to be confined to one another. Maybe confined is a bad word. But they ought to be devoted to one another. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15 through 20, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are really lectures and essays, as it were, to, uh, as, a parent, as if a parent is speaking to a child. But he says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. You see, the first three verses of that really don't make sense. What did you drink from water from your own cistern? He's talking about be satisfied with your married partner. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Be intoxicated at all times. That's what love is. That's what love ought to be in a marriage. 
the intoxication of love. And that's really what the Song of Solomon is all about. And there are some scholars who say that this really is a, a vision of the church. And there are shades. If you have read the Song of Solomon and you paid attention to the songs that Tim led this morning, I'm the lily of the valley. His banner over us is love. The fairest of 10,000. Those are words from the Song of Solomon that they have used. But in chapter 2, in the verses that were read, some of you may, may recognize the verse 11 of chapter 2. If you are fans of Ernie Harwell, that was the verse that he would repeat every spring before the first game. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Can't you just hear him as he begins spring training with the tigers? And you think, that is such an odd one. And many people did not realize that he was quoting from the Song of Solomon here. But this chapter, in this passage that we're reading, and especially verse 15 is where we're taking the passage from, speaks of that springtime of love. And there's a time that we, we talk about love blossoming and blooming. It is in the springtime. For lo, the winter is past. But slowly, because I really do want more snow this winter. But that, I digress. But we come down to verse 15, and it seems rather enigmatic. He says, actually she says in this case, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. And there are three parts of that that I want to, to focus in on. But why catch the foxes? There is a particular game that Janine is undefeated in, has never been beaten in, and it's called whack-a-mole. <laughs> and whack-a-mole, they really aren't moles at all, but they're prairie dogs. And anyone who has been out hunting out west can tell you that when you have these huge farms, which can be thousands upon thousands of acres of these little prairie dogs, which are cuter than a bug's ear, but they will wreak havoc on the land. Why? Because they dig their little holes, and you can't ride a horse through there. Because that horse will stumble in that hole and break its leg, and that's it for it. Foxes are the same way. Catch those foxes, those little foxes that spoil the vineyards. And if you remember from a passage in the Old Testament where a man catches 300 foxes and ties them by the tail, you think, how would you ever find 300 foxes? Well, foxes were rather prevalent. And once they would get into a vineyard, they would wreak havoc on it. Not just prairie dogs, not just foxes, but anyone who's a farmer knows that there are certain animals that can really wreak havoc on crops. Whether it is deer, whether it is turkeys, raccoons can do it to our own homes. They can be pests. But he says, she says, catch the foxes for us, those little foxes that spoil the vineyards. The first one I'd like to see is catch the foxes. It's that that proactive part 
in a marriage. Certain parts of this book lend itself to, to really looking at it closer. We look about the proactive marriage, which means it is a marriage that has purpose in it. It is a marriage where people just don't say, well, whatever we're going to do today, that's how it's going to be. But people who are proactive in marriage have the vision to see a marriage through beyond what today holds. In chapter 8 and verses 6 through 7, we read, She set me as a seal upon your heart, a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flash, its flashes are flashes of fire in the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Many waters cannot quench love. And that's the, that's the attitude that needs to be in a marriage, is knowing that, come what may, nothing is going to put out our love for one another. And make a list of everything that is out there that can quench. And to quench means to satisfy. As long as a fire is burning, as long as you keep adding fuel to it, it will keep on burning. But many waters cannot <coughs> quench love. The proactive attitude in a marriage. From the very beginning... And in the, in the moments of a wedding ceremony, and I know that both the, the bride and the groom are listening intently at what the preacher says. Amen? Uh, that was rather weak there. But within the comments, it's talked about that eternality of love that exists between a man and woman. But it takes work. It takes the proactive attitude of it. In chapter 4, in verses 7 through 9, he says, some of your versions may have he, she, and the daughters of Jerusalem uh, above these paragraphs, and others simply a, a paragraph. In chapter 7, verse 4 begins, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinar and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Captivating our hearts. Think of that of always realizing and knowing from the very beginning that it is more than just the trappings of puppy love, but it is the captivation of the heart, that proactive, that we are planning for this marriage. We are planning to have a good marriage. There's a marriage series from McKean and Faulkner, and they talk about love is a decision. Yes, Many times we think that love is an emotion or love is a reaction. But in marriage, love is a decision that you make. 
And from the very beginning, as you're captivated with the, the preacher's words, realizing, yes, amen to that. No, they're busy looking in each other's eyes, as well they should. Catch the foxes. But then you have the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. Then this next part is overcoming negativity. And I know that none of us here have that problem. So we're going to talk to those people that are out there of negativity in the marriage. Of criticism. We just read in, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, but in verse 7, he says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You know what that says to me? I don't see anything wrong with you. Right, guys? Okay, there, that's strong. Yes. And that's the attitude in marriage. Yes, we all know that we have flaws. But to see your mate through the eyes of you have no flaws you know it is easy for criticism to take root in a marriage it is easy for criticism to take root anywhere in life that once you begin to lean towards that you're just drawn like a magnet but it takes work to always see the best there is no flaw in you Imagine that if we woke up knowing that our spouse is not going to criticize us. Imagine the opposite of that, of knowing, I wonder how long it's going to be before I start being criticized. The difference that it makes in that. In chapter 1 and verse 6, Here we have again that the Shulamite is saying, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Within the context of that, we, we think about the culture of that time. And it may not be as far off as we might think because we're a sun-loving people. Even though we're this far north, we're at the 45th parallel. We love the sun and we love to get a tan, but it has not always been that way. And those who like to read about the southern bells uh, in that part of the, our history uh, pre-Civil War is that it was known that to go out into the sun made you look old. To be as white as you could was to be very attractive. Read Gone with the Wind sometime, you'll, you'll see that. And here, the same is true in Solomon's day. To go out and get sun meant that you were a worker. And she might have been criticized by those. He says, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. Don't judge me because I have had to work in this. And so, from this, I draw from that the the jealousy that people might have, the envy, the judgmental sayings that are there. And again, it is the negativity that can overwhelm 
but see the positives in life. Don't always be looking for the worst. And finally, as we come down for our vineyards are in blossom, we speak of the everlasting love in marriage. The idea that it is going to last forever. In chapter 5 and verse 4, She says, my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. That's the way we feel about each other in marriage, isn't it? The thought of, I know she's on her way home and I am thrilled that she is going to be there soon. I am so thrilled I'm going to turn off the sports. I'm so thrilled, I'm only going to see her coming through the door. That thrill, not just in that first year of life, as we read earlier in Deuteronomy 24, not just that first year, not just up to year seven, but forever, that thrill that we have of the sound of them coming. Does that sound impossible to you? It seems that way in the world. But it ought not to be that thrill that we have. Dropping down to verse 10 as, again, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Remember hearing that in the song and singing it? The fairest among 10,000. To have that idea that she thinks I'm the fairest among 10,000. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But the idea that no matter when it is in a marriage, that either the husband or the wife says, my partner, as we age together, is still the fairest among 10,000. My beloved, she is radiant. Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 11, is written from the standpoint of a man that he learned from his mother. An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Imagine thinking that, believing that, and telling others. As we come down to the end of Proverbs chapter 31, we come to verse 28. It says, Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. You see, we might think it and believe it about our spouse, but do we say it? Do we say those lovely words, those positive words of reinforcement? that they long to hear, laying aside the criticism and concentrating on the positive. Back to chapter 2 as we bring this all to a close. In verse 14, 
O my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. To be enchanted. Isn't that a word that is good in marriage? To be enchanted with just the sight of your beloved. You see, many times we, we read some of the passage from the Song of Solomon, we think, well, it's all about, well, you know that word that starts with S and ends with X. But it's more than that. It is about the enchantment of love, of constantly, no matter how long one has been married, to gaze into their face. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For our vineyards are in blossom. Our love is in blossom. And it always ought to be. You see, the example that our current culture, and, and you think of how timeless this book is, and we, much of this you may say, well, this is spoken from the Western thought. But imagine a marriage that is based upon you are chosen. Your mate is chosen for you by your parents. Can love actually blossom? Yes, it can. Because it's what you've made up your mind to do. And as we look at what it means in the expression of love in marriage, where would we learn it? Certainly, we are not going to learn it from our current media. We're not going to learn it from television. We're not going to learn it from the movies. Because you look at those who portray love in movies, and you look up the biographies of some, oh, well, they've only been married seven times. And yet they make movies about love. Or people who write songs about love, oh, well, they've only been married four or five times. And I know I cast this version, I, I don't mean to be overly critical, but only to me from the positive standpoint that where should children learn about love and marriage? Now they ought to learn it from the scriptures, but they ought to see it in action. They ought to see what true love is when we follow what God has given to us. And for many they may read Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul talks about that this great mystery, and it is to many people, it is still a great mystery. I have no idea what's going on in a marriage. But it ought not to be because that mystery has been revealed when we see that our marriage ought to be just as Christ in the church, the perfect and beautiful example. In chapter 2 and verse 1, it has two phrases, and Tim is going to lead us in, in a song here in, in just a moment. It says, I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Christ is our model as men. He is the model of sacrificial love, of what he sacrificed for the church. And women as the bride, the church is your example. That all-sacrificing and all-devoted attitude that we have. I hope that this 
sermon, although unusual, and you can think back in your own mind and think, when was the last time we heard a sermon from the Song of Solomon? It may have been a long time. You may never have heard one. But because it is inspired scripture, it has a place in our lives. And I hope that it has been an encouragement to you. It has been an encouragement to your marriage. It has been an encouragement for you to teach your children what true love is all about. And as we extend the invitation, we certainly don't want to confine this to those who want prayers for marriage, although we are willing to do that. But for any need that you may have this day, we extend the invitation. As together we stand and sing. Jesus.